We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Comedian, podcaster, variety historian and ventriloquist. Steve Hewlett shot to fame in 2013 when he wowed both the judges and crowd on Britain's Got Talent with a little help from homemade puppets of Simon Cowell and Sinita. By this time, Steve had already tasted success, becoming the new voice of Educating Archie, paying homage to the great Peter Brough. First, in 2006, on the request of Sir Terry Wogan, and then the critically acclaimed play in 2012, based on the life of the popular 50s vent. I caught up with the relentless entertainer as he became only the second subject of the Beyond the Title live tour and hear from the voice behind the characters and get his take on the future of this ancient art form. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steve Hewlett. Go away and learn. And uh, I think it meant go away. But he said, go away and learn. And if you're still interested, come back and I'll give you some lessons. And I, I went away. I listened. I got the book Christmas morning. That was the only thing I, I concentrated. I knew the little square book wa- was there. So I opened that first and I sat and studied it for a couple of days. And I went back probably on the 27th of December and said, I've learned the book. Um, uh, this is what I can do. And I showed him my technique. And my technique was there from an early age. So I could talk with that with my lips and and he started to give me lessons after that and so it was it was it was the fascination of a ventriloquist getting laughs and I was such a shy kid I'm really shy now I find it very hard to approach people but if people come to me I'm happy to talk I'm very I'm quite a nervous person um, but I was always shy in school I hid behind the teachers you know but it it gave me that little speaking through the character gave me that confidence to, to actually entertain people. And then I'd done my first assembly about six months later to about 150 kids, and I loved it. I loved the laughter that I got from it. And I was getting, from six months before, I was getting what Jimmy got on New Faces, and th- that was destined to be what I wanted to be. I never looked back then. And if I did, I would have seen a little dummy there. <laughs> a little ginger dummy. A little ginger one. <laughs> <laughs> You're better looking than he was. Thanks, mate. Very nice of you. So Britain's enjoyed a rich legacy of vent acts over the past 60 years, uh, from uh, Peter Burrett to Ray Allen, Roger DeCourcy, Keith Harris, Jimmy Tamley, plus others as well. So what was it... What is... What, was it with the work of any of those old campaigners that inspired you to become a ventriloquist? Well, yes, first, I do need to correct you just quickly. You said Peterborough. That's a place up in... Um, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> ...just above Cambridge. But Peter Bruff is the ventriloquist yeah, we're talking about. That's what I'm the ventriloquist on the radio. I told no. you, what, what, one step up from a chimpanzee. No, I no, no, that's fine. I know Archie Andrews did stop at Peterborough once because he got <laughs> lost on the train. Uh, that's in my book coming out next year. But, uh, yeah, so Peterborough and Archie Andrews. And was I didn't know anything about him until a few la- years later. So uh, when I started, Ray Allen was on TV all the time in the 80s. Roger DeCourcy and Keith Harris. Those three I always talked about because they were always on TV. It was only those three that, that, that they used to show. And then you get the odd ventriloquists come over from America. Shari Lewis and Lamb Chop. Uh, Ron Lucas and Scorch the Dragon, one of my favorites. 
And, and so they would all appear on the Paul Daniels Magic Show, you know. And it was only those variety shows, the summertime specials and Paul Daniels, that would showcase the events, you know. And uh, the Royal Variety Show sometimes would have them as well. So they did inspire me. Keith Harris was, was one that I really loved because he entertained the family, you know, yeah. the kids. And, <coughs> excuse me, so, so he, he, he was on uh, all these TV shows. He was doing quite a lot, Keith Harris was. And I had a phone call. I was at school, and I, my mum said, you've had a phone call from a television company. Because I started to do a couple of talent competitions and getting a little bit known. And my puppet makers um, put my name about, you know, around London. And so I had a phone call from LWT, and they were doing um, a TV show down in Bristol. It was HTV, actually, in, Wale- in Wales and Bristol. And they were doing a show called Pig Attraction. And it was a TV show all about puppets. And this p- specific one was about ventriloquists. And so Ray Allen was on it, Keith Harris, and they wanted a budding ventriloquist. And I was the only one about. So I got the job. So I worked with Keith Harris on this TV show when I was 16 years old. And we became friends. Uh, he, he watched me from behind the camera. And then uh, one of my biggest inspirations, and it was amazing to, to have him watch me do my thing, you know, from behind the camera. And then we g- he gave me lots of advice and then four years later, we met again, me and Keith, in Blackpool. He was doing a season. I was working at the Tower. And then he gave me one of my characters that's still in the act today. So it's, um, yeah, I, I was inspired by a lot, of those, a lot of those events, you know, from an early age. And uh, sadly, not all, uh, not all with us anymore. But. And I, I remember the very first ventriloquist I saw. I was five years old at school. This is the earliest memory. It was Terry Hall, Lenny the Lion. Who remembers Terry Hall? And it, he, uh, he was amazing because he had a TV show, Lenny's Plays Pops. And David Bowie's father was the director or the producer on the show. So David Bowie would be in the Lenny La- the Lion fan club. And he'd be like in the studio running around while Terry was filming all these pop shows. The Beatles were on Lenny the Lion's pop show. It's, it's an incredible story. But ventriloquism was really huge back then. We talked about Peterborough. And um, or if you just define the name a little bit, Peter Bruff, right? Uh, <laughs> so Peter Bruff, Archie Andrews, the the most famous ventriloquist in the 1950s, the highest paid uh, entertainer in the whole of the the country, and he had 17 million listeners on Educating Archie back in the 50s, and it was fascinating because he he was a ventriloquist on the radio. That's the end of that joke. But the children back then who would run home and listen to it after school or if it was on a Sunday, you'd sit at five o'clock with the whole family around the radio and listen to Educating Archie. But Peter Bruff uh, brought Archie to life. So you actually believed he was a real life boy like Pinocchio. And it was, it was a really interesting concept. But people like Beryl Reed, Tony Hancock, Max Bygraves, they made their names by going on the show. Benny Hill, Bruce Forsyth, they were all guests on the show. And it created stars. It was a fascinating thing, Tony Hancock. It, it was, yeah, it was brilliant. So I, I've I've done a lot of research, and I, I've got to know all these people. I used to write to every ventriloquist that would, you know, work in a local venue, theatre. I'd write, I'd go to the stage doors, and try and get their autographs. But I wrote to Peter Bruff, and he sent me a letter. I still got the letter; it's framed, and he wished me the best of luck as a ventriloquist, and he sent me a signed photo of him and Archie, and that meant so much to me. And I wrote to theatres. Terry Hall was doing panto in Brighton, and we became pen pals. I was writing to Terry Hall. And when he passed away, his wife uh, phoned me up, and she said, 
Terry's got on his desk, he's got all the postcards you sent when you were doing summer seasons or if you got a write-up in the stage newspaper, Terry Hallward, he said, oh, Dee, come and have a little look at this. Look how well Steve's doing. And he'd followed my career right up until we passed away. And that meant a, a huge, great deal to me, really, as a young ventriloquist. And I admired all, the, all these ventriloquists. I, I really, I'm paying tribute to them in a book that's hopefully coming out next year. But Did you ever get to meet Terry, like meet him? I never met Terry Hall, sadly. Really? I, I met Lenny. So after he passed away, 2007, his wife uh, came to see me on Chroma Pier. I was doing a summer season. And she said, Terry worked here. He worked on the pier like 20 years before. And she said, he would have loved you. He would have loved your act. And he did love your act. What he saw on TV, he liked it. But um, we got together about another year later, and she invited me to the home to meet Lenny the Lion. And he'd never been out since Terry passed. This was 10 years after we lost him. And she got the suitcases outlined, lined out in the living room, all the suitcases with his characters, Mickey Flynn. which He was called an English ventriloquist with an Irish dummy, Terry was. And uh, Mickey, F- Mickey Finn was his little character, little wooden. But he had about 15 different characters, and she got them all out. But she saved Lenny till last. So I was the only one to see Lenny the Lion after he passed. And she was emotional. I was emotional because of the connection I had. But she opened up this suitcase, and I just saw Lenny lying there, Lenny the lion lying there. <laughs> and, and I picked him up. It took me about 20 minutes to hold him because it, I don't know if you remember Lenny the lion. He, uh, Terry's hand would go inside, and he'd go, oh, don't embarrass me, and he'd put it ha- his hand. I think it was his left hand. So he'd, he'd work the character like this, but the, lion's, the lion was so big, he wrapped the body around him. And if you see him on YouTube, you can see how it's quite complicated. But his left hand was Lenny's hand, so he wouldn't have an arm. So he'd only have like, he had no arms, actually, because one was inside and one was in the hand. But, uh, so I couldn't actually work him. I, it took me like 20 minutes. But she, the fact that she let me have a go on him, and, and I, was, I was thinking about writing a play about uh, doing Archie Andrews, bringing him back and bringing back Lenny the Lion and writing a play about these wonderful ventriloquists, uh, paying tribute to their their life and careers. I didn't get around to doing that, but I'm still writing other ideas. But the Lenny the Lion thing, she said, one thing, if you do take Lenny out and you use him, please keep him alive. Because, you know, don't have him lying down on stage like here and get him out of the box. Um, do it backstage and so he's alive as soon as he comes on stage. Because every time um, children would come to meet Lenny the Lion after the panto, the stage manager would knock on the door and then Terry said, you just wait just a minute, and he'd get his hand. He'd bring him to life. He never wanted him to see li- uh, the kids to see it lifeless because it spoils the magic. You know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so that's, that's what uh, Terry wanted. So if I ever do anything with Lenny the Lion, I'll make sure I, I, I keep that promise. So, of course, you're following a um, variety career path trodden by great ventriloquists um, who have entertained audiences on many a summer or seaside summer season show. Uh, Royal Variety performances for decades. Remember, this is a craft which has begun in the late 1800s or 1880s uh, in the music hall with Fred Russell and his sailor dummy, Joe, uh, Costa Joe. Yeah. Having a great reference for your ventriloquist heroes, which aspects of your own act inspired by the peers of your craft? 
Well, I, th I think it's, it always used to be um, ventriloquists with a dummy on the knee. That was the, and Fred Russell was the godfather of ventriloquists, and so he would, he was the first ventriloquist in the music hall to actually stand here and put a dummy on the knee. You know, but Peter Bruff done that for years, and he had terrible. Um, varicose veins uh, later like it had a really bad knee circulation and stuff by doing that so i don't do that so if you see me perform i do it differently my dummies stand up and i'm standing up and and we we do it slightly different but i i'm inspired by the banter between the characters you know so if you see if you see me in arthur lager if you go back a hundred years that's fred russell and costa joe in the musical it's just man and dummy man and dummy but you need to keep it fresh. You need to move with the times. And so that's what hopefully I'm bringing to the audience is something, uh, you know, bright and special. It's like a cartoon on stage. Yeah. You know, uh, Terry Hall was, um, I, th I think, one of the first, uh, definitely in the country uh, of England, uh, he was the first ventriloquist to use an animal uh, character in, in his act. Yes, but there was a French ventriloquist that was the very first to do that. But Terry Hall uh, used th that character. So I've got a few animal characters. I've got a few human characters in the show. It, it keeps it fresh, you know. But So Lenny the Lion, I guess, or Keith Harrison Orville yeah. uh, would be my Pongo the Skunk, really. You know, So they've inspired me with the animal character. And then the human dummy would be, I, I guess, would be like Arthur Prince and Jim, who goes back to like the 19, 1905 when he was huge, uh, huge, hugely paid entertainer on, on the um, music halls, when all those theatres used to be open. Do you remember them? Yeah. <laughs> I remember Sandown Pier Theatre. That was great. I used to go and see shows there when I was... I worked at Whitecliffe Bay in 1994. I was 19 years old, and I had all of my Sundays off, and all my Sundays I would go and watch whatever variety show was on. Tarbuck was there, Jimmy Tarbuck, with Kenny Lynch and Neville King, one of the greatest ventriloquists. And I would go and watch them, and I'd come back, I'd work, uh, I'd work Monday to Saturday, and I'd go back and see Stan Baldwin, and then I'd go back and see Richard Digence. Every Sunday was my night, it was just me, sat in the front row at Sandown Theatre, and I loved it. It's amazing, those theatres, there was more theatres open, wasn't there? It was wonderful to see all those variety shows. So talking about heroes then, like Ken Dodd was another hero of yours, wasn't he? Yes. Right, so we'll talk, we'll talk at length about his comedy legacy in a moment, but in terms of ventriloquists, where would you put him in the uh, Pantheon of the Greats? Um, I made a mistake when I was, uh, I was writing my book, and I made a slight mistake when I reached out to Brother Water Rats. I, I am a water rat, which is a show business charity, and it's a, uh, the emblem you can see here is the, the little rat. And Ken Dodd, was a water rat, uh, Arthur Worsley, Keith Harris, um, Fred Russell was the first ventriloquist water rat over 100 years ago. And so I was writing this book and I reached out to all the water rats that were ventriloquists and said, any, and any stories you've got about ventriloquists, please, please, um, please send me your stories. And I reached out to Roger DeCourcy because he's a water rat. I, I, you know, I want to interview for, for my book. But I, d I didn't put Ken down, because Ken, to me, is a variety artist, a comedian. But I didn't he does a little bit of vent with Dickie Mint, doesn't he? But I, I, didn't, I didn't really involve him in the uh, conversation of, uh, I want to interview you about ventriloquism. And it was later that I learned more how passionate he was. He started out as a ventriloquist. Uh, Dickie Mint is, is the ventriloquist act that... I always waited for when I went to see Ken Dodd work because sometimes I had a week off to see one of his shows. 
wait for the <laughs> laugh and move on. <laughs> so, and it was wonderful. Um, to, you know, he'd do five hours. I ended up doing three years touring with Ken around the UK. I worked Liverpool with him, South Sea at King's Theatre. I'd done a lovely couple of years with Ken, and he'd watch me in the wings. That was one of the greatest feelings of seeing one of the masters of variety and comedy watching you do your thing. And I'd turn around, and he'd, he'd be standing there just watching. And then he'd give you advice. He'd, he'd take you to the dressing room. He'd sign the check for you, and he'd try and get it down before he signed it. <laughs> yeah. He said, you know, oh, it was it was two, wasn't it? I said, no, it wasn't two. It was a little just higher. <laughs> it was like a generation game. Yeah. It was, what was it? Wheel of Fortune. Higher, higher. And so, but he was a wonderful master. He was very generous. He loved the younger variety acts. Um, Dennis Spicer, great ventriloquist, Arthur Worst. All the ventriloquists you can think of the last 60 years worked with Ken Dodd, Keith Harris. All He loved ventriloquists. But I didn't involve him in this, in this email that I sent out. And um, th- this is a night about me name-dropping. So if you don't mind, I'm going to name-drop. We going. were at Buckingham Palace. It was <laughs> I joined the Water Rats two months before the 125th anniversary of the Water Rats. And it was great timing because we were invited to celebrate 125 years at Buckingham Palace with Her Majesty and Prince Philip, who was a companion Water Rat. Um, bless him. And so we went there, we, we met Prince Philip and the Queen, and we would chat, I chatted to the Queen about uh, Archie Andrews, and she, because Peter, Peterborough, right, he used to do um, Christmas parties at Windsor <laughs> Castle. He used to host all of their Christmas parties for about 40 years. And it was fascinating that, that he, you know, he would bring uh, Tony Hancock, Benny Hill, to do a Christmas show. And it was Brit- so I brought that up with Her Majesty. That was the only connection I had with um, royalty, you know, so, and apart from I had a fiver in my pocket and her head was on it, and and some stamps as well, which I had, but I didn't get them out. I could have got her to sign my fiver, couldn't I? (laughs) Has she ever done that? And so it was, uh, it was fascinating. I introduced my wife to the Queen. That that was amazing. But anyway, I I turned up at Buckingham Palace. Ken Dodd was there uh, with Anne, his now dear wife, Lady Anne Dodd, and, and he said to me, he said, oh, I'm upset with you, young man. I said, oh, what have I done? He said, oh, I'm upset with you. He said, why did you not include me in the, uh, in the email with a ventriloquist? I'm, I'm a ventriloquist. And then I, my heart sung. I thought, oh, my goodness, of course he's, you know. And then I researched more and more about Ken, and he's so passionate about being a ventriloquist. I apologized, and then uh, there's this huge tribute. I'm making it up to him in my book a huge tribute to Ken Dodd. I, I loved him. He was like my um, my show business uncle, you know. He, he was an amazing guy. Really, really good, as I said, to younger performers coming up in the business. But I will pay tribute to Ken in the book. As a ventriloquist, he's got his own section, and he deserves it. Because technically, he's brilliant as a vent. Yeah. You know, really, really. Te- I, I, I actually go on a little bit further paying tribute. Yeah, can I show you that? If you want, yeah, I've got a little course. bit I like to show you and a little bit of performance. But it was his 90th birthday in London, and the British Musical Society wanted to put something on to celebrate his his birthday. And Roy Hudd was organising it and asked me if I'd do a little piece. So I wrote a little 10 minute piece. But I said to Roy, "I've got this idea, but it's going to cost me a bit of money. So don't cancel my part in the show because I, I'm going to fork out for this." And it was it was a lot of money. I told you backstage. So just before you do your tribute, then just before yes. because um, can you? So talking about Ken, 
Can you remember the first time that you were aware of Ken Dodd and what was it about Ken that made him so unique? Yeah, I was I was a teenager and I watched one of the audience with Ken Dodds. Do you remember them? They yeah. were brilliant. They were the best audience. I with. think I've still got that on DVD. Yeah, he. I've got both of them. He done <laughs> yeah. two of them, and they were. If you want to see Ken in his prime, the best he ever was. Those two audience widths were incredible because he banter with the audience. There, there's people crying. All the celebrities were crying in that audience with laughter. He he had that the knack of really entertaining whoever was in the room. If you. If you could stay awake for five hours, he would he would entertain you until you left the building. You know, they cancelled taxis and buses. Yeah. You know, people just they I remember slept in theatres. I can't remember how old I, how old I was, but I um, must have been about eighteen, nineteen. I took my mum and dad to see him in our local theatre because my dad loved him. And again, just like you said, it was just everything and more. You know, and I got I I was fortunate. I was a little bit cheeky. I went backstage, met him in his dressing room and stuff. Oh, and like you, everything, yeah. and it's amazing to say. Everything you're saying, I wasn't, you know, I didn't know him as well as you. But again, it was just shows the essence of the man that he can be like that with anyone, whether you've known him for years or just met him. Or he was just like for me, incredible. Yes, I, I, I remember the first time I met him. I, I knew he was because he was on these audience widths and he was always on TV. Um, I would, I was one of those kids who would go to stage doors to meet people. I wanted to get into the business. So when I was twelve, like twelve to like sixteen. I just get trains after school. Sometimes my parents did know I'd gone, so I got a train from Basingstoke, which is where I lived, and uh, all the way to Portsmouth to meet Ken Dodd. Uh, straight after school, I didn't tell my parents that I'd gone. I thought I'll, I'll be back by nine o'clock. They won't even know. <laughs> so I, I got a train, and I missed seeing Ken Dodd get into the theatre. And I said to the people on stage, I said, how long is he going to be? They said he'll be out about one o'clock. <laughs> and so <laughs> oh, th- I've come all this way. I can't go home. So I waited there. I met these ladies called uh, Joyce, and uh, the, I called them the Golden Girls. There was four ladies at the stage door, and they were all sisters. They were lovely. And I got to know them, and I was friends with them for about 20 years after this stage door meeting. But they looked after me. They stayed there with me, and um, they said, oh, he'll be out. And then he came out about 12.30, and I waited five hours to meet him. I was just really excited about meeting Ken. I knew he'd done a bit of vent. I knew he was the king of comedy. By the time he came out, it was 12.30, and he had time for me, like he did with you. He had time to talk to his fans. He signed things. And he said, what, what are you doing here, young? I said, I'm a ventriloquist. I'm learning. He gave me his address. He said, write to me, and we'll stay in touch. And he said, one day you'll be on my show. And so I held him to that for 15 years, actually. <laughs> and... And so uh, I never give up when I get an idea in my head. But so I stayed, uh, I waited. And then when I got to the train station, the last train had left at midnight and it was one o'clock now. And my parents didn't know that I was gone. So I uh, I panicked, I cried because uh, they said you've missed the train. But the, the people at the train station at Portsmouth, they said, if you, you can sleep on this train, the first one's going back at five. So I slept on this train. Five o'clock, it started to move. I went back to Basingstoke. And I, I ran from the Basingstoke train station to my front door. I let myself in, snook upstairs, and I got into bed. And about 20 minutes later, my mum knocked on the door. School! And they didn't even know I'd gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they didn't know I disappeared. But I snook out. But I got to meet Ken Dodd. That's how passionate I was yeah. about this business. I love it so much. I, you know, I could have got kidnapped or so something. So when you didn't <laughs> turn up for dinner, did they not say anything? Oh, we, we never got dinner. We never got fed. No. <laughs> 
Now, you always take your sandwiches or breakfast to a Ken Dodd show. You always, yeah. always be prepared. No, I mean, like, when <laughs> I was, like, going from Ken Dodd, your mum knocked on the door. No, I, I don't know why they didn't notice. And <laughs> I, I told them about three years ago that I did this. They didn't even know I'd gone. That's so brilliant. I, 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 I don't know why they didn't, because they always called us down for dinner. That's strange, though, isn't it? <laughs> Bad parenting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I had great parents. So it's a shame, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's that. That's it. Yeah. So you you say you've got a, a tribute? Is it? Or is it? Do you want to do it now, or do you want to? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I of course. Ladies and gentlemen, would you like to see Steve's tribute? To well, this is this is the thing. So I said to Roy Hyde, I need to get this thing made up, um, and it, it co- you can imagine the, the cost. It was um, uh, more, it cost more than my car, and so I got this made up because it was for Ken. It was his ninetieth, a really big thing about to happen, and I got this dummy made up which was like remote controlled and then i would come on and i would do this little section with um uh, with my own characters and i say i was going to get a ken dodd uh, dummy for this event today but then i thought i can't have a character that's going to be on stage four hours after i've left the building which was the ken dodd joke about staying on too long the audience laughed then i'd done eight minutes and then um i said good night i walked off and then revealed a puppet behind me, which was Ken Dodd. He started to sing Happiness. It was remote control. And so I left the room, and the dummy stayed on after I'd left. That was the joke. Um, I, I don't think it, the joke was worth £5,000, but the character was. I'm going to bring him on now. Uh, he's not remote control anymore, but uh, what I'm going to do is just show you the character. And it, it was my... I really, really hoped that he didn't think that I was going to let him keep it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cause it, yeah, oh dear, cost me a fortune. So I'm just going to go and get him and come say hello. Right, if we could just uh, ask as well, is that so we can get the full effect? If we can just get the the backlight, is that is that okay? Just to just so we can see it, see it all. Here he is, ladies and gents. So this is uh, Diddy Doddy. <laughs> so uh, we're going to play. We're going to do the Diggy Mint routine. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> I'm tickled. <laughs> okay, anyway. So, uh, you, you've come a long way. Yes, yes. And uh, are, are you, uh, you must be very thirsty. Yes, yes. Would you like a big brown bottle of brown bubbling beer and some brown bread and butter? Or would you like a shandy? A shandy. Good, 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 good. And uh, would you like to say, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers? If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, where's the peppers Peter Piper picked? I'd like to hear you say that. So would I. <laughs> Okay, and uh, are you going to say, she sells seashells on the seashore? If she sells seashells on the seashore, where's the seashells? She sells for sure. Are you going to say that? No. <laughs> good, 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 good. Now, um, Diddy Dotty, are you going to do the alphabet backwards? Pardon? Are you going to do the alphabet, 26 letters of the alphabet backwards? No. If he don't want to do it, he doesn't want to do it. Uh, so, uh, just quickly, uh, who is your favourite Hollywood star? Nicky Nouse. <laughs> who? Nicky Nouse. Who's Nicky Nouse? He's married to Ninny Nouse. <laughs> and what does she do? She sells seashells on the seashore. <laughs> there you go. Diddy Doddy. There he is. <laughs> Happiness for you. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. Right, I'll tell you what I'm going to ask as well. So, like you, Doddy thrived in a theatre where he could go on for hours, like we've, we've spoken about. But why do you think that television always struggled to create the perfect platform to showcase his enormous talent? Because I know you said, we, we spoke about he's had his, um, his audiences with, but like an actual, you know, um, 
TV show of his own, so to speak? Because the time schedule, they didn't have enough time to slot him in, I think. They had to get the news in at 10, didn't they? <laughs> if it was a Ken Dodd show at 5 o'clock, the news would have to move to 11 or 12. Uh, so I, I just he did have his own TV shows. You know, in the 70s, I believe, the Ken Dodd laughter show was on telly. It was a weekly variety show. But later on in the years, you know, when he, when he was... He t- I think Ken just got better and better. You know, but... TV just wasn't the same, you know. We'd done the, the last Royal Variety show we did probably about, excuse me, about 15 years ago. He didn't really enjoy it because they edited it. Edit, edited, I can never say edited it. <laughs> edited. Edi- they edited <laughs> Ken Dodd's act out of the Royal Variety show. They, they didn't leave his best stuff in, and he was really upset about that. And, and, and so, it, you know, they, sh- they showed uh, the wrong jokes, really, you know, because he led... He builds an act. When Ken Dog comes, he builds an act like you do as a stand-up. You build your act, and right at the end is a crescendo of massive laughter and then a song, you know. Um, but they chose bits that just kind of... It didn't really scan for Ken when it came out. They, they sh- were showing some of the, the, the weaker gags of that spot, you know. He'd, done, he'd only done about... I think they showed about nine minutes. He probably done about 18, but he was just quite upset about that spot because yeah. he's a perfectionist, you know, and... And when he'd done the audiences with, they, you know, he, he did a few hours there and they had to edit the show. But it was it was fantastic if he was in the audience. Yeah. Well, obviously, as well, Dickie Mint, the leader of the Diddy Men, was Ken's favourite puppet. Apart from it being an obvious comedy device, there was also some touching elements of Dickie's routine. Now, how difficult is that to execute? Um. I, th- I think with Ken, it was it was all about timing. So um, obviously, I, I've just kind of depicted a small part of the Dicky Mint routine that I do with Diddy Doddy. But it's it is about the timing, you know. If Ken was doing Dicky Mint now, the audience would have been in stitches, right? Because it's the way that he put it over. It was his act. I'm not trying to do his act. I'm trying to let a younger audience uh, or another generation. I want it to live on, you know. I don't want Ken to be forgot. So he's in the book. He's He's in part of my act on some of my tour shows. So, so it, it's something very important to me to not let people forget, like, musical and variety of just the last 20, 30 years. And I don't want people to, f- to forget Ken Dodge, you know, and people like him, Roy Hudd, these great, great comedians that paved the way for us younger performers, yeah. you know, so that they gave me a lot of their time. And so I'm going to make sure people remember them. And, and, and I'll nail that routine, and I'll come back in 10 years, and you'll be laughing at it <laughs> next time I do it. It's, it's, it takes a lot to master. I can't do what Ken Dodd did. You can't, no one can. There's only one Ken Dodd. Um, but I can pay tribute to him, you know, and remind people what a master he was. He was wonderful. He was, he was uh, a wordsmith. Um, he was a scientist of comedy, yeah. basically. So speaking of heroes, like you mentioned, like Roy Hood and Ken, and as amongst others. So speaking of heroes of ventriloquism, you've recently written a book celebrating uh, the great masters of the art. So what did this teach you about your own craft? It's given me a lot of material, actually, so, to, talking to all these others. <laughs> so my act has got longer. So, uh, no, I've ten, interviewed... Ten longer? <laughs> yes. I've interviewed <laughs> ventriloquists all over the world for this, so it, it's amazed me at how many different countries... Uh, it, it's because of... Not Britain's Got Talent. Uh, I'm more known in countries because of Britain's Got Talent, and YouTube is an amazing thing. And so when you get millions of hits, you don't actually know who's watching. But I've interviewed uh, ventriloquists in Japan, in Kuwait, 
and um, America. There's a young lady who won America's Got Talent called Darcy Lynn. When I interviewed her, she said, I was a fan of yours when you was on the show. And you don't realize that people around the world are watching YouTube, you know. And when Britain's Got Talent, there's a ventriloquist on there. Hundreds of ventriloquists watched me on that show. But you don't know that until you talk to them. And they say, you know, so I was kind of an inspiration to some of them. And now uh, they've gone on like um, Sweden's Got Talent, Australia's Got Talent. Uh, the Got Talent franchise has shot ventriloquism back onto the map again. Because it was a di- you'd hear dying art as the ventriloquism. Um, and it started to come back really about 10, 15 years ago. What, in, in England or just in general? Around the world. Yeah, it's because huge in America, yeah. I was going to say, in, in America, it seems to be a lot more accepted, uh, a lot bigger. Yes. Then, uh, you know, in the UK, obviously, it was massive. In the 80s, like you said, you know, I, I was a massive Keith Harris fan. And then when I seen yourself, and it was like you said, there was, there was that period, wasn't there, from like the 90s, I'd say, to then it, it then stopped and then kind of came back, you know, with the likes of yourself, you know, Paul Zerdin and people like that. And I, I used to watch, genuinely, I used to watch the Royal Variety as a kid as well. On, on the hope of ventriloquist, on the hope of Keith Harris or anything, mm. or a, anything that was variety or different. In, yeah. You know, like especially now, I mean, as, as we've seen shows, it's all singing, all singing, all dancing, and it's, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's fresh. It keeps it fresh. Well, yeah. I'd done talent competitions all through the 90s when I was a teenager, and I would come first, second, or third. Uh, not fourth, that's not what I wanted, but <laughs> first, second, or third I was happy with, you know, because you get a prize, prize fund. I earned £10,000 in talent shows. My last one was on Bournemouth Pier in 1997. Dave Lee, a great comic, he was one of the judges, and Amanda Holden was a judge. Uh, so I, I wonder if she remembers me like 20 years later on BGT. She never said she did. But, did you never ask her? Uh, I didn't ask her, no, but, uh, but I won that. You know, I won three, £400 that night. Uh, but I earned more that night. I did on B- BGT. On <laughs> so you don't win anything, even if you win. But, uh, you know, well, well, if you win, you do. So, so I'm going to ask you as well, because you were saying about, like, you know, the power of YouTube and stuff and like, where people have seen yourself. But there's one clip of Roger DeCourcy, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people here remember, where he introduces Nuki the bear to a group of children and then it descends into chaos. Right? How do you? How do children normally respond to your puppets? Um, you, you get some t- ch- children. The reason I use Muppet style characters, like Arthur Lager's my main character, but he's like a Muppet. You know, he's a foam. If you use like Ray Allen's Lord Charles, these sk- these wooden characters. Some people are terrified of dolls and characters. Yeah. Automatophobia is what it's called. You're scared of ugly people, or uh, mm. that's not my choice of words, but. It's uh, clowns and puppets and dolls. <clears throat> so it's that bracket. And, and so I use these characters, bright characters, and because they've got bright eyes and bigger mouths, and, and it's more of a cartoon. So children, uh, they're not really that scared. But when, when I do like a, a room, uh, I've done like t- 200 people in a room last week in Devon, and it's all families, all the kids sit on the floor. And one of my puppets turns around and goes, Chucky's coming, <laughs> you know, and so... Uh, it's not to scare them, it's to make the adults laugh, but the kids don't know who Chucky is, you know. Yeah. It's a scary doll, obviously, but uh, you could bring the kids in. The kids love it, the kids want to touch the puppets, you know. They're fascinated by Ponga the Skunk, or I've got a little character I had made up called Chi-Chi after BGT. I was going to use it on BGT, but they always wanted the old man to come back. So I had characters made up, I spent a couple of grand on getting new characters, because I saw Chi-Chi as a little merchandise market for Christmas that year but they didn't want him on. 
Uh, and so they just want it. Uh, Britain's Got Talent, they know what they want on the show, you see. And so they choose your material for you. Cool. So. so, okay, this is um, going back to, again, it's a bit of a difficult question, a difficult question that I'm going to ask. But what do you think, well, well, sorry, why do you think there became such a negative stigma towards ventriloquists, such as, you know, Keith Harris, Rod Hull, Roger DeCourcy, during the 1980s by both uh, the press and, you know, TV management who regarded them as cheesy and old-fashioned? You know, what, what, would, what would be your response to this? Uh, they call it cheesy because it's kids' entertainers, I think. They just put them into one bracket, you know. But Keith Harris changed all that. If you know about Keith, in the later years, in the 90s, he, uh, he went away from the children's shows and started to do the Duck Off show, yeah. which was uh, Keith Brilliant. and Orville doing adult material. So it would, it would um, I, I won't do any of it now because it's quite rude, some of it. But uh, he, he cornered the market of the corporates and the the uh, university audiences and Butlins, late night Butlins, he'd do the family show and then four hours later go and do the adult show and fill it full of adults and and they go, why are we going to watch Orville the Duck, you know, and then they watch it and they cry their eyes out with laughter because he mastered that little, he changed his career in the last 10, 15 years of his his life And, and he was a master at what he did. He knew what worked for families and children but he knew what made Adults laugh as well. He, he was fantastic. I think the that. fact that because the adults that he was then playing to were also watching him when they were children. That's you know why I mean? they they yeah. thought, "Why are we here? We come to see the duck that can't fly." Yeah. But then they've got this you know, childhood heart for him, they, this passion for Orville. But he turned it around and he made them all, you know, laugh as adults as well. But uh, th- that's what you do as a ventriloquist. You you know you drag the audience in and hopefully they believe your character is real, uh, and that's what he did. So. Yeah, no, it was, um, because I, I, I was fortunate, again, to, to work with Keith, and I seen both shows, and again, it was just, you know, you get people asking, is it the same show? No, it is not the same show. It's, it's a contrast. Been, yeah, it? massive, you know, because again, it, you know, Cuddles comes into it a little bit more as well, and, you know, obviously, we know that there's always been, um, what, a feud, we'd, we'd call it a feud, yeah, you know, between, yeah, Cuddle, yeah, between Cuddles I and Orville. I ain't duck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But then on the actual duck-off show, I mean, if you've been fortunate enough to see it, it was uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, as you say, like the, w- the way you cornered it and like brought it in. Yeah, so, so the press brought that up, you know, they always made fun of Keith and Orville and uh, uh, Roger DeCourcy, he won New Faces in 1988. Um, so, sorry, 1978. He won New Faces and got a kids' TV show. And he hates kids, so he <laughs> does not want to entertain children, right? And and so, uh, don't quote me on that, but it's, he doesn't want to do kids' parties, basically. So he's doing this TV show. I bought it on DVD a couple of years ago and, and told him I bought it, and he just laughed. But he, he said, I shouldn't have done that. Um, because he just wanted to do corporates and stag parties. And, and Roger the Corsi is a great stand-up comedian. He doesn't like using the bear either, but he gets it out at the end for 15 minutes and brings the house down because Nookie Bear is funny. You know, yeah. He crosses his eyes and he takes the mickey out of the audience. But it's a great little tool you know, if you want to pick on the audience. But Roger brought that bear to life, you know, and, and it was the magic of that. But the press always put him into a little bracket of kids' entertainers and... And they're not every ventriloquist is different. If you see Vents these days, uh, we're all different, you know. And hopefully, we are. I'm different to Paul Zerdin. I'm completely different to Nina Conti because she wears dresses. And I <laughs> also, and Nina Conti is fantastic. She's award winning. Yeah, Paul Zerdin's great. He won America's Got Talent. He obviously done it in the right country. I did it in this country and come fourth. So they like you better in America 
three American, uh, three ventriloquists have won America's Got Talent. So that makes me think. Do you think it would have been different if you'd done it in America? No, I would have come fifth probably. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wasn't ready. You got got to be ready. I was ready when I did my heat here, and I don't regret anything I done on that show. It opened a lot of doors for me. It was amazing. But uh, as the well, you did mention Rod Hull in your question there as yeah, well. Yeah, I did. Rod Hull and Imu. Now, who thinks Rod Hull is a, was a ventriloquist? He was an eventualist. Uh, it's in my book as well. Another section of uh, like Bob Carroll's was an eventualist and and Rod Hull because they they um, they never spoke really. You know, with the, with the characters, they were just puppeteer, great puppeteers. Uh, and so, um, if you speak, you know, without moving your lips, oh, chickeny China Chinese chicken, that makes me eventualist because I'm talking with my mouth shut. And uh, Rod uh, Imu never spoke. He just attacked Michael yeah. Parkinson. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what he did. And that is a great sketch. If you, can, if you can watch that on YouTube when you get back tonight, the Michael Parkinson sketch is brilliant, isn't it? But you are, you are right. It's not ventriloquism. It's not. No, no. no. It's, pu- it's puppeteering. He was a great puppeteer. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, then, after several decades in the entertainment wilderness, right, why do you think that ventriloquism saw a revival in the late 90s? As we spoke about before, you said about, you know, like, the 80s, it was big for, you know, Keith it's, Harris, and then it kind of... Yes. It's, it's about the, the revamping, really. Everything has a cycle, doesn't it? It comes back again. So it's, it's about updating things. And so uh, there was remote control dummies. You start seeing the Royal Variety shows. David Strassman came over. Ron Lucas yeah. came over. And, and you start to see people walk off stage and leave their dummies, and the dummy would move on its own. Uh, or, or you, remote control dummies that they would move, or you get the mouth, the the moving mouth. I don't know if you've seen the ventriloquist put a mask on a human on on TV. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. Everybody was doing that, you know. The ventriloquist market around the world went crazy. And you, you do it in your act brilliantly. You do it really well. Uh, but it, it's it, everybody was seeing a ventriloquist do that. I never wanted to do the vent mask routine. I've told you this years ago. But uh, because everyone was doing it, and I, I want to appear kind of different to, to other vent acts, but I was losing work. I was with a management yeah. who said, uh, "You're you're not getting the P and O ships, or Butlins don't want you unless you put the mask in." So I was I was saying, "Why why am I not getting these bookings?" And they were saying, "Because you're not doing the mask." I had to get masks made up because. I couldn't work without them. They didn't appreciate my act without. A, a ventriloquist, over the last 10 years, a ventriloquist was only a ventriloquist if that routine was in. So, But it did actually make it a revival. Um, Nina Conti did it on the Apollo, and it was on Royal Variety shows, and everyone was doing the vent mask. I never wanted to do it. And then I, I got a contract with Jimmy Osmond in America, and he said, hey, Steve, uh, do you do the mask routine? And I said, no, I don't do it, Jimmy. I'll do it for you, though, Jimmy. You're Jimmy Osmond. If you want me to do it, I'll do it. So uh, he said, I've got some masks. So he used them in his show uh, just for a bit of a giggle, you know, because he's seen someone do it in America. America's Got Talent. And then he put it in his act, (laughs) Jimmy Osmond, the ultimate performer. And uh, so I went to America, and then I did my 10-minute slot. The second half was me just doing the mask routine. So I got two people out of the audience every night. And it brought the house down. It was because they hadn't really seen it that much in America, but over here it'd been overdone. Right. Everybody was doing it. So, so I put it in for those two seasons I done with the Osmonds in in the states, and I started to do it in um, some of my my Butlins. I did it for a while, and some of the cruise ships, and then I stopped doing it again. I, I felt like it was overdone, 
Um, so I stopped doing it. Yeah, no, I can I can, under, I can completely understand what you're saying because I I used it because I'm not a ventriloquist um, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not so a comedian be, uh, <laughs> like you. <laughs> be, being able to obviously sit here with you this evening, but I did it as a bit of a I put it into my act the, the masks as a bit of a homage to the talent and to the craft of what you guys well, do. You love ventriloquism, though. I know I how it. much you love the vents. Yeah, yeah. So, it's a nice so then doing it, but very much like yourself, I would get booked. Just for the masks, yeah. you know, and it was like, oh, you know, can, can you do the mask? And it was like, but I'm not a ventriloquist. It's like, well, you know, do that, and 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 it just be, it became. I, I completely understand what you're saying. Like, when it's why do you need to do that if you've got so much more, you know? Yeah, and then, yeah, sure. You know, then obviously, unfortunately, Paul Zerdin done it over in America's Got Talent, and it worked brilliantly. And then Jimmy Tamley done it over here, and. You know, so we all know yeah, what yeah. happened. What it happened didn't work Jimmy. as brilliantly, no, because it, it it had been done quite a yeah. lot, you know, by then. Uh, but um, th- so, so, like two years ago, I was I was doing the mask routine, and then all the audiences started wearing masks. So I thought, well, there's no point if everyone's <laughs> doing the masks. Uh, we all wore masks for a year and a half. You can't see anyone's lips move. You can all do my job. What's the point of me putting masks on them when they're already wearing them? So, and now. Um, but I'm starting to get bookings now again. They're saying, can you put the mask in? So Are you putting it back in? As long as they're two metres away from me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I will stand a little bit. I did it in the corporate a couple of uh, weeks ago. They, they wanted it in. And so, yeah, as long as I sanitise them. Not the people. <laughs> they can sanitise themselves. <laughs> sanitise the masks and, yeah. and everything's fresh, you know. So I've got a few weeks in between each gig at the moment. That's how it's going. Right, we've got one more question before we go for a break, but I'm going to give this opportunity now. Has anybody got any questions in the audience that they would like to When's the break, a- probably, ask is Steve? the question. <laughs> yeah. Is the bar open? I mean, you can say, well, I'll open it up again in the second half, but if anyone's got any questions that you'd like to ask, touching upon the first half. Yes, yep. There we go. Uh, that's a nice question. I, I think it is the uh, when, when I, I was shopping for a bed with my wife. Uh, this is a strange start to the question. <laughs> answer. Um, we we were shopping. I just I just done Britain's Got Talent. It was a year. It was no. It's like three years later, and things start dying down after you do TV. Like two years later, it dies down. You don't get many calls. And I had this uh, Tony Denton was a, a tour promoter. Is it hi Steve? It's Tony here. We, um, We'd like you to tour with the Osmonds at Christmas in 2016. Would you uh, like to do that? I said, oh, Tony, I'd love to do it. I'm not doing pantomime. I've just got a few corporate gigs. So I'd love to do that tour. He said, it's only 12 dates. He said, but Jimmy Osmond would like to talk to you later about coming to America to do a couple of shows at Branson, Missouri, which was on my wish list of venues. Branson, Missouri was on my list of working. And it came to me via a phone call in a bed shop. And I wanted to jump on the beds while I was on the phone. I was like, I was being really cool. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll talk to Jimmy. I'd, yeah, I'd love to talk about the American stuff. And my wife's there. I'm trying to mouth to her who's on the phone, you know. And then I got off the phone, and we was, we bought a bed. And then I went home, and Jimmy Osmond phoned the, the landline a few hours later. And, uh, hey, Steve. Uh, and th- th- this this guy was, like, famous from three years old on the Andy Williams Christmas variety show. Um, for me, as a variety performer, to, you know the Osmonds, the most famous variety family in the whole of the world. And so it was incredible to be talking to one of the Osmonds. 
But Jimmy was inviting me to America to the Andy Williams Christmas show, which he hosted for many years. Him and his family were on that show for many years. Every Christmas, the Osmonds would feature. And now he bought the theater off Andy Williams before he passed away. They were all friends of each other's families. So it was called the um, the Moon River Theater in Branson. So I was working this 2,000-seater Christmas, two shows a day uh, at Christmas um, out in America in 2016. And it was just one of the most proudest moments I ever had. It was uh, to, for me to be going on and in, you know doing a little set, and then I introduce, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Osmonds and the Lennon sisters. We don't know over here, but they're like the Beverly sisters, but they're huge over there. The Lennon sisters, they're lovely, adorable ladies. And, and they would do like uh, Beverly sisters type music, you know, and, and great Christmas songs. They're so famous in America. So I'd introduce the Osmonds and the Lennon sisters. And then I'll be off then until the start of the second half. Then I'll do the mask routine, have them all in stitches, and then introduce the second part of the show. So uh, I, I can't be really more proud of them working in America, but working with one of the, the most famous um, families in the world was just in, incredible. It could have been worse. It could have been the Osbournes, but, but it was the Osmonds. Uh, <laughs> Sharon! <laughs> you know, but it, it, that was lovely. And the Albert Hall... The Albert Hall with Kenny G. I'd done a three-day tour with Kenny G. Loved the saxophone, loved Kenny G. And when they said it ends at the Albert Hall in London, uh, I just thought, I never thought I'd work anything bigger than Whitecliffe Bay or Lodi Park. And so, um, and then Shanklin Theatre, which I love that place, and I've worked there a couple of times, that with the Osmonds, actually, last time I was there. And so it was so nice to be able to... Um, to do the Albert Hall. There, there were a lot of proud moments, but if I didn't do Britain's Got Talent, that's why I'll never knock the show. I think the show was incredible for me at that time. It, it gave me uh, those doors, you know, to open. It gave me the key to open the doors, and, and very proud of that. And I went back to Branson. I'd done two years for the Osmonds out there and worked with them in Fifth Dimension, and uh, it, was, it was incredible, yeah. Right, so final question before we wrap up this half and we go to an interval. Following Paul Zerdin's victorious win on the big break, sorry, the big, big talent show in 1997, you auditioned for the next series. What were your memories for that show? Um, Paul won in 96, uh, and then I went on it in 97. Right, okay. And, and so, sorry, uh, I apologise. Uh, no, so, sorry. No, it's, it's, uh, no, people do get mixed up. But uh, it was only on for two years. So Jonathan Ross hosted this show, the big, big talent show. And uh, Paul Zerdin, a ventriloquist, won it. Uh, I, I heard they're cousins, strangely. I don't know why. I don't know why he won. Uh, and so he... he <laughs> uh, they're cousins, apparently. <laughs> and that's, that's why I said it. It's not controversial. It's just, it's just a fact. That's why he won. And so, no, he was brilliant. <laughs> Paul Zerning won it because he was fantastic and he shone. You know, he, yeah. he should have won it and he did. And I was probably silly to go and, and think I could get anywhere near the finals in, in a show that was won by Ventriloquist the year before. But I was 22. I just turned professional a few months before and I wasn't ready for television. So I went on the show and I got slated. Gary Bushell slated me. I said I was more wooden than my dummies. And... Which was wrong, because they were all made out of foam, the ones that I use. <laughs> I should have corrected him there and then. But I was really shy. I was still shy. I was 22. I was such a shy kid. You can see I'm like a rabbit in headlights on that show. Even at 37 on BGT, you can see me being interviewed by Anton Deck and Simon Cowell. And I'm, so ne- I'm, I'm the happiest I've ever been on BGT, because it's the best TV I've done. But I was so nervous when I was, 
I was shaking inside. But uh, when, I, when I'm not with my characters, I, I'm quite shy. I'm being quite confident now, but I'm behind the microphone, you know. I am a shy kid, and you see this with actors and uh, maybe comedians and puppeteers. We do hide behind our characters, you know. Um, so, yeah, when I done the Big Big Talent Show, I thought I could have done uh, just... Actually, I got a few couple of gigs out of it, but I also lost a couple as well. They saw me on that show because of what Gary Bushell said. I had cancellations. They said, oh, he's not going to be able to do our club for 45 minutes if he can't impress us in three minutes, you know. But whatever the judges say, the audience take it on board and that's why the votes go a different way. So if, if a judge doesn't want the act to get any further, they'll say something negative and the audience go, oh, yeah. they won't vote for him. He's not very good. Like subliminal. Um, it's, it is subliminal. subliminal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that's just the way the TV shows go, you know. It's it's kind of, um, yeah. It, it's they, they they know what they're doing on the show, you know. I think I was there to be, uh, I was t- to entertain. I don't think they thought I was going to get any further, but when I done my audition, I, d- I did, I did um, six minutes at the London Palladium. It was incredible. I had a stand innovation. The, the audience were, were phenomenal. And when it went out on TV, they showed 20 seconds, and Ollie Merz was singing over the top. So you couldn't really get the essence of what I did that night. Yeah. And I'd love to have that footage of the Palladium, the stand innovation, the laughter I got in there was incredible. But it, it was, I, I remember I was doing a gig in Wolverhampton at the football stadium, and we, we was doing a magic night. And my brother came with me. He said, because you're on telly tonight, I'll come with you and support you at the gig. And they had a TV in the dressing room. So we sat down, and BGT started. And my audition, they, they phoned me the morning before and said, you're going to be on tomorrow, so tune in. So um, my, my brother was so excited. He said, I'll go and get us a pint at the bar. This is a few hours before I went on stage. I went, yeah, get us a pint. Sit down and watch me on telly. My biggest debut ever. And then he came back, and he saw my face. He went, what's the matter? I went, you missed it. He said, ah, you're joking. He thought I was pulling his leg. I said, no, you missed it. They showed about 15, 20 seconds, and it was just like a, a brush over, if you know what I mean. One of the biggest things in, you know, in your career has just been edited. And uh, my heart sank a bit. I got loads of text messages to say, oh, don't worry, Steve. If you get through to the show, it's what you make it on the show, you know, and it's you've got to prove yourself. And and they didn't know, and I didn't know if I was going to get any further than that. Um, so my brother, w- you know, that was an expensive pint he bought, really. It was... He, he missed the show. He watched it when he got in because he recorded it. But it was a very quick 20 seconds. So how would they compare then, like going back to like the big, big talent show and Britain's Got Talent, how did they compare? My, my experience, really. I was 22 and thir- I had 15 years experience. So in between that time, I, started to, I just started to do cruise ships when I was 22. So I, I started to do pantomimes. I was doing comedy clubs, theatres, holiday parks. I, I started to do my groundwork. So the experience that yeah. I was ready at 37, I was such a shy kid, and I wish I never had. I wish I had more confidence. But the confidence always held me back. You know, I'm quite a nervous performer. But when when I done BGT, I was ready to just go and uh, I wrote all the scripts, and me and my wife put the act together. 
And uh, so when I think maybe the second half we might talk about, I don't know what's coming up in the second half. Yeah. If there's any BGT stuff, I'll save that for then. I'm sure. But uh, 15 years experience was what held that together, really. Uh, there was a huge contrast between that 22-year-old yeah, to the 37-year-old. I was still a little bit nervous or a lot nervous uh, <laughs> because there was a lot more riding on this second spot on telly. There was a career that I built up over 15 years. I was starting to be known in the business and and I was putting that on the line because if it went wrong and and they buzzed me off on that audition, then I could have lost summer seasons and pantomimes. It could have gone the other way. Yeah. Yeah. But then we went live. <laughs> well, that obviously, and I'm pretty sure, like you said, that we we're going to be talking about that in the second half, ladies and gents. So that does bring us to the end of the first half. So thank you so much for your time and patience. And like I said, we've got another jam-packed second half coming your way. But that's interval time, ladies and gents. So please give them a great big round of applause for the first Right, okay. Now, as you can see, ladies and gents, we've got the Beyond the Title creator live on stage with us, Mr. Josh Barry. He's going to be joining us because, ladies and gents, uh, as I'm sure we're all aware, uh, on the aisle, something very, very tragic uh, happened uh, only a couple of weeks ago. Speaking of variety heroes, it wouldn't be right on a night like this if we didn't mark the passing of a local hero, right? And that is, as we know, the one and only Mr. John Hannum, ladies and gents. So... Here is the actor and comedian Jeff Stevenson to tell us more. So once again, please just gaze your eyes to the screen. Stevenson here, um, now old comedian. <laughs> um, thanks to Josh for doing this for John. John was a great guy, and uh, I can only say I, I, I will miss him. I will miss being interviewed by him because his interviews were always the best. And um, I'm sorry I look like this because I've just got in my run. And John always used to make me feel guilty. He would always make me feel guilty if um, he would say, "How's your running going?" Because I, you know, I know you used to do a lot of running over the downs. So uh, I hope this all goes well, which I'm sure it will do. And uh, we miss you, John. Have a great time. Bye-bye. There we go. An absolutely... 
true local hero, Mr. John Hannum. So we've got a few questions because we know that John was a massive part of uh, Josh's like career in, you know, with everything that you do. So firstly, just to get a bit of context, how important are local journalists to recording the ever-changing entertainment landscape? I only met John once, uh, but it was only via the phone. Uh, I, after BGT, I got to do my first UK tour, and I came to Shanklin Theatre. And the, the person that I was sent to through my PR people was actually John Hannon to actually do an interview over the radio and, um, you know, to try and get people bums on seats and things. And, you know, if he was if he was here this week, we were trying to get in contact a few weeks ago before we knew he was uh, not very well. Um, we were going to get on the John Hannam show to publicize this show. And so it would have gone further back because he would have filled this venue for us. You know, he was uh, a master of his art. He was the Michael Parkinson of the Isle of Wight, wasn't he? He, he really knew how to interview people. And he made me feel welcome on his show, just chatting about ventriloquism and um, variety. He loved it. He loved the business. And he made you feel part, uh, like it was just you, you know, he was talking to. And he made the audience at home really want to listen uh, and and come to that show. Because he would sell your show for you, wouldn't he? He had a passion for what I was doing. And all the shows that come over, he would always champion that. And he will be dearly missed. I only spoke to him once, but I've seen the tributes over the last couple of weeks. It's been incredible. And I know uh, Josh is heartbroken by that because uh, he may have been here tonight. But in a way, I, I believe he is, you know, because he, it's variety, isn't it? Variety and uh, the journalism that's brought us together, Josh. And I know you're a big fan. So, yeah, so bless John. Yeah, wonderful man. I think that's a beautiful way to end, ladies and gents. For the one and only as well, please be upstanding if you knew him as well. Uh, here on the island, the legacy of John Hannum, ladies and gentlemen. Right, we are going to continue the part two of the um, Beyond the Title live with Steve Hewlett. I'm just going to take this screen up for us, ladies and gents. Just bear with me two seconds, I apologise. Josh Barry, ladies and gentlemen. Josh Barry, thank you, sir. The reason we are here this evening, um, I've done the granddad joke, okay, that's this. Normally finish on a song, but that's fine <laughs> if you want to do a gag, is that alright? Okay, alright mate, no worries. Didn't, <laughs> didn't plan it in. Right, here we go. <laughs> I think they're on. Right, ladies and gents, welcome back. Obviously, we've had the tribute to uh, John Hannum. So once again, I mean, like I said, I never knew of the gentleman, but I obviously know his work through Josh. And you, again, from myself, you can just see the love that is obviously for John around the room. So again, from myself, thank you so much. That was uh, incredible to be a part of. So thank you. Thank you from myself, ladies and gents. Thank you. And now we're going to continue with the second half of uh, Beyond the Title with Mr. Steve Hewlett. Um, we're going to pick up some bits that we touched on in the first half. And again, we'll open it up uh, to yourselves. If anyone's got any questions that you would like to ask uh, towards the end, then again, please do feel free. We'll open it up. And then you're going to finish off with your act, aren't you? I'm going to do a set. Yeah. You're going to do a set. A lot of people, I believe, have no idea who I am. So I'm going to show you what I do uh, at the end. And, and so uh, hopefully... Uh, otherwise, maybe you've Googled me and watched YouTube in the interval. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. So I'll show you a little bit of what I do uh, after this. Right. So we're going to, again, like I said, touch back on one of your heroes that you spoke about before. Um, 
was the great Roy Hood, who we tragically lost in 2020. And like you, he was a renowned variety historian and became the chairman of the British British Hall Music Society. How pivotal was Roy in keeping the spirit of the music hall alive? Uh, very, very important. Uh, just like Ken Dodd would keep variety and comedy alive, Roy Hudd was, uh, you know, they're the, the last of those greats that, that we see. And I was so proud to, to know Roy and Ken. Uh, Roy, I first met him when I was hosting a show in Norfolk at the Thursford Christmas Spectacular in 2008, 9 and 10. And it was a wonderful show, 1,400 seats twice a day for seven weeks. I'd done it for three years, and it was the last Christmas show I did in Norfolk in 2019 when I hosted it. But I, I met Roy Hudd. He was in the uh, interval. They, they called me over and said, Roy Hudd's in the, uh, the Royal Box, which is where royalty do sit when they visit the show. And uh, Roy Hudd was there, and he, he came over, and he, he gave me a routine. I'd, I'd met him a minute earlier and he gave me a routine he's oh steve you should do this you're a great vent he was very complimentary he gave me bless you he gave me a routine and then uh, he, he gave me his address and we stayed in touch ever since and about three years after that i worked at Leeds city varieties uh, a good old days show which is a great variety show roy hud was top of the bill i was uh, one of the acts on the bill and backstage, he was doing a tribute to Max Miller, a wonderful, wonderful tribute. He, he was such a historian and a wonderful performer, and he knew everybody in Variety. I bought a lot of his books. Actually, before we did meet, I used to write to him because his address was in the Musical Society book, and he had libraries and loads of books that he was selling all the time. So I got a few signed, you know, when I was in my 20s. But um, at, at the backstage at the City Varieties, he said, Son, you should be a water rat. And I knew about the water rats. I've met them. I worked with them. I, I knew it was a showbiz charity. But it was people like um, Les Dawson, Tommy Cooper, uh, Charlie Chaplin, Lauren Hardy were water rats. There's no way I'm going to be a water rat. But Roy Hudd said I should be a water rat. And w- when someone like Roy Hudd says this to you, Mr. OBE, you, you kind of listen and think, oh, you know, maybe somebody likes what I do. And it gives you a little bit of confidence like I said I never had confidence and then I was invited into the water rats and that gave me a little bit of confidence actually or quite a lot and then I was a year later I was made a water rat and proposed by Ken Dodd uh, sorry um, Roy Hudd this is my certificate and uh, King Rat at the time was Rick Wakeman so Rick Wakeman was there and called me into the room and done all of the things you do to become a water rat and that ferret is still with us, actually. And that doesn't go on, that sort of stuff. It's, it's a very normal s- situation when you're invited. It's a lovely, lovely evening. And Prince Rat uh, was Ian Richards, a fine comedian. Preceptor, Roger de Corsi. So to have another ventriloquist invite you into the Water Rats w- was incredible. He, he was my... Also, my seconder, he, he, you know, he, he went for it and said, yes, Steve should be a water rat. That made me very proud. And my proposer signed at the bottom there, Roy Hudd, OBE, past King Rat as well. And Roger, of course, he was past King Rat. Now it's, I'm a water rat number 883 since 1889. And so it's, it's like, um, uh, you know, a showbiz fraternity that's been going on. It was just started by a group of entertainers that wanted to get together. And then they said, oh, we should 
raise some funds. So we raise some coins together, do a few shows and help out other entertainers. And they still do that. Last year in the lockdown, they helped out entertainers because we lost work for 15 months. And they helped me out. They helped me and my family. They, so becoming a water rat, you know, I did get to meet the Queen. That's a very proud moment. But we are looking out for each other and other entertainers. We help the Royal Variety Performance, the Brinsworth House. I've done a few performances there. I met a brother water rat. My first gig back this year was the 17th of May, um, 2021. And at the back of the room when I was working at Brinsworth was past water rat. Well, no, he's, he's still a water rat. Mike Yarwood, the greatest impressionist of all time. And one of the first impressionists, Mike Yarwood, was a, was a genius. And he was sat at the back of the room. And, and me being a ventriloquist and doing voices for a job, he was the one I wanted to impress. I mean, the whole audience, I wanted to enjoy what I was doing. But Mike Yarwood, I wanted to raise a smile from that master of variety. And I looked back halfway through my spot, and I saw him turn to somebody in a chair next to him. And he, he looked at him, and he stuck his thumb up. He pointed to me and stuck his thumb up. And they both nodded, as if to say, this, this lad's doing all right. And that's all I needed was a little bit of acknowledgement from a master of uh, variety. After the show, Mike Yarwood came backstage and shook my hand. And, and, and he, he asked me what I was doing next and everything. And it was just so pleasant. It was amazing, you know. So, um, yeah, as, so Roy had all these people that you get to meet in the business that you look up to and respect. Uh, John Hannum, you know, all these people in their genres. We all meet, you know, in, in all these different uh, sort of uh, parties and do's that we do or, or shows. We're always doing shows together. And it's, it's so nice to be invited into such um, a, a great charity, you know. Yeah, I never, I, uh, never met Roy. However, uh, my little... I had a conversation with him once because I was in Panto in Folkestone in 2019 and Debbie, his wife, she was the director. I mean, Debbie got on really well and she was talking to Roy about myself and it was just incredible the fact that, you know, I knew who Roy Hood was. I knew who, I I didn't, because obviously it was Debbie Debbie Flickcroft and I didn't realise until we got into the rehearsal room that she was Roy's wife and I was just like proper, like kind of starstruck as well and she told Roy about me and I'd, um, had a conversation with him on the phone. He was just saying how pleased he was, um, how well he heard that I had been working in, you know, trying to hone the craft of comedy and slapstick as well. As we know that Roy is really big into the slapstick side, and I never got to meet him. He said he was going to come to the show, but obviously, as we know, unfortunately, he wasn't very well and he was ill. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a regret, but I wish I had. And when I get to speak to people like yourself, you know, I'm going to ask you the question: of What was he like? in person because I know what he was like over the phone and he was incredible right and that was literally just for a brief two three minutes conversation on the phone and he was just incredible over the phone so I imagine to the face mind-blowing to the face he was he was a wonderful man is he welcomed everybody in I I, I done every time he invited me to do something he had um, a village fate where he lived near in Suffolk and he said Steve would you straight after BGT so would you open my fate and I was like, wow, yeah, why would you want me to? But okay, I'll, I'll come and open the fate. So I did. I, I went along and <clears throat> his wife, Debbie, wonderful lady and great entertainer and director. But she, uh, she cooked us a lovely lunch. We opened a bottle of wine. We, 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 we done the fate. And then we went back to theirs. And then we had a bottle of wine. Obviously, we didn't drink <laughs> before the fate. But he, he wrote this poem. I still got the poem at home. And it's, it's, it's like um, 
about 10 different paragraphs, this poem, all, all about me and my rise on the, on the TV the year before. And he spent that time doing that. And when I became a water rat, he wrote me a poem then as well. I'll have to put them on my website. They're beautiful little things, you know, for him to put that time in to write about me was incredible. But he had a lot of time, like Ken Doddy, a lot of time for younger performers, up-and-coming entertainers. He wants... He wants us to pass it down to another generation, yeah. and he doesn't want it to stop. So he was, uh, he showed me into his, he had like a, a man cave. These days you call them man caves, but you went into it, it had a whole, and it, it wasn't a shed, it was a museum. And it was uh, folders, files, it was books, it was albums of, you know, Max Miller, everything, files and photographs. It, he had everything that was musical in his old man. And you go in his house and there's posters on the wall of him with Max Miller. And it was incredible. It was, it was a museum visit for me. So I yeah. really got to know him. He, was, he invited me to a lot of variety shows. Uh, there was one thing ab about doing a charity show in this business is that what you get from doing them it's more charity shows. <laughs> so uh, you, you, know, you do a charity show and then you get another 10. And so and sometimes we have to try and earn money to feed the children, you know. But it, it is wonderful to do it because you meet people like that. And, and he passed that on to me, you know, the kindness. And now I'm seeing younger people in the business. There's a young ventriloquist called Max Fulham. Uh, I put on a talent competition in Norfolk. Uh, five young male ventriloquists came along. Max was one of them. And I knew that he was going to do well. He didn't win on that day, but we stayed in touch. He just turned 22 last week and just done his first cruise ship. He just got back a few days ago. And so I can see a little bit of me in him when, he start, when I started, you know. So I, I've helped him over the last seven years since we met, seven or eight years. I've given him advice and stuff. He's now managed by the wonderful Hilary O'Neill. And he's one of the young ventriloquists to look out for, Max Fulham. Uh, Roy Hudd met him once as well, and he loved him. And so it's very important to pass it down to another generation. And uh, Roy Hudd done that for me. Ken Dodd, all these, uh, you know, Jimmy Cricket, they've been really wonderful. To, to uh, uh, you, you pass it down, you know. And there's another guy called John Fisher who produced the Paul Daniels Magic Show, the Tommy Cooper shows, the Ron Lucas shows as an American ventriloquist. John Fisher is a wonderful guy. He's now the president of the Max Miller Appreciation Society, uh, which I've just been made patron of uh, a couple of months ago. It was in lockdown, actually. And I had this email saying, we would like to invite you to be patron of the Max Miller Society. And that, for me, is you know to carry on s some more memories and and make sure that people don't forget these people. Max Miller, uh, Roy Hudd was the president until we lost him. So, again, it's me being part of that, uh, handing it down to another generation. It, it's incredible to, to be asked, you know. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So you said about Roy Hood after you went on Britain's Got Talent and became like a massive part in, um, within yourself as a person, but within your act as well. So obviously in 2013, you came fourth on Britain's Got Talent, which I'm sure, you know, as you've spoken about, is a highlight of your career. But what many people don't know, um, well, obviously in the public, is that they actually, Britain's Got Talent, invite professional performers on to perform with the public. And when you got, I, I imagine, like with the invite, what was your initial feeling towards, like, in the terms of, you already said before that it was going to be a gamble, like, going on. But then you went on, you done it, and then you got through to the lives. How how was all that, like, with the experience of being invited on and having it that way? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's uh, exciting to get through to the show. But then 
when you get through to the show, and everyone was telling me, all right, you're going to be on the live shows now, so now you have to make it count. And so as soon as we found out I was in the live shows, I had a puppet that I got recycled. I sent it to a place in Portugal who made puppets and, like, uh, renovated them. So I sent this character. It's a male character, and my wife came up with the idea. She said, right now you're on the show. You need to have a Simon Cow puppet. So we sent it to Portugal. I sent him a photo of Simon Cow. I said, can you make this look like Simon Cow? It sent it back two weeks later, and two weeks after that, I was live on a Saturday night primetime television, 13 million people watching, and... I did not tell the producers that I had this spare puppet in the case. <laughs> so I went on the show with Arthur Lager, was my main act, and I was going to do some stand-up, a couple of jokes. Simon Cow was in the box, and this was the last rehearsal before we went live that night. And so I do the Arthur Lager spot, because you rehearse for two days. So I rehearsed on the Friday. I'd just done Arthur Lager, and he finished on a bit of a rap, and I put him in the box and took my bow. And it got a little bit of a reaction. You've only got sort of tech members of the television studios and all the other acts watching you. So they're thinking, oh, that's it. You know, it's a good spot. I got a few laughs with the old man character, but that was it. But little did they know that I had something up my sleeve. But on that audition, I uh, sorry, the rehearsal, I ad-libbed quite a bit. And the producer came down and she said, that ad-libbing that you're doing about all the shows during that week, because it went out every night that week, and I was on right at the end, the producer said, you can put some of that in tomorrow if you want. They loved it that I ad-libbed. And so I went, yeah, yeah, I've got something up my sleeve, uh, literally. And so we went, the next day we came back, I'd done my last rehearsal, and I got to that part when I do the Arthur Lager and I put him in the box, and I didn't stop. So they thought that was the end of my act. I put him in, and then I pulled out the Simon Cow puppet, and as soon as I did that, I didn't even need to say anything. The place erupted. The producers all ran down. They said, you're doing that tonight. I said, yes, please. Right. Ant and Deck were crying with laughter there. They were in their jeans, you know, just sort of rehearsing. And, and they laughed. I only done one line, I think, is, uh, I did not like it. I absolutely loved it. It's the only line I put in. It's his catchphrase, basically. And it just worked because it, because it looked like Simon. It had the, the sunburn on the chest, glasses, spiky hair. His trousers were up here with a white shirt on. And it was just funny to end on a Simon Cow puppet. And one little catchphrase, that was, that was the, uh, the thing that won it, I think. Oh, about? there he is. There oh, yeah. is. I should have just went like that. There he is. <laughs> He's the one in the middle, by the way. <laughs> As, uh, as Amanda Holden, that one. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so th that just went really well. But I knew that I had to do something other than my act. Because if I just went out there and done my act, I would have been all right. And I would have got a few bookings. But yeah. doors wouldn't have opened just by doing my act. You have to go on and you have to surprise. They love the element of surprise on there. And so I did surprise them. I'd done the Simon Cow, And then I got kicked out of the show that night. Um, they chose a singer and said so I was in the top three that night and then the two judges uh, Amanda and David Williams went for me but Simon and Alicia went for the singer with the guitar so I went home and I celebrated uh, the next day I said to my wife I'm going to go and get some Prosecco couldn't afford the champagne I'm going to get some <laughs> Prosecco I had a great night last night don't be sad that I didn't get through to the final which was the following Saturday but I'll go and get Prosecco and cook us a roast dinner. So I went to the garage, M&S garage, round the corner, and I picked up the Prosecco, went there, and there were, I heard people talking behind me, and I heard them saying, Ben's got talent. 
separate. So people, like, when you're on TV the night before, everyone's gossiping in the shop. There's about four people behind me, and I've just got to that till, and I'm going, oh, they're talking about me. This is weird. I put my Prosecco down, and my card declined. (laughs) And now they're talking about something different, right? (laughs) And I'm thinking, that's showbiz, right? (laughs) Carry on. I apologize. Sorry, guys. I've just got to to run back to the house. And I did. I I left it there. I said, I will be back. And and I didn't cry, but I did run back. I laughed and I told my wife what happened. I said, I need to go back very quick. Well, then people are still in the store because this is embarrassing. And so I went back and I had money in the account. It was just something wrong with the card. But it just goes to show, you know, I mean, the next day I was working in Pontins that night. And so, uh, you know, you get these ups and downs in show business. And, and it's just a wonderful thing. Um, but, but then it was, I, when I went back to the shop to actually pay for the, the uh, Prosecco, I had a phone call from Britain's Got Talent. And it was the producer. And they said, Steve, you're, uh, you're, um, you're going to be the wild card along with another five other people. So you might be the wild card, but we can't tell you until Wednesday. Can you get another puppet made up? And so I, I can't just, it takes months to organize a puppet to be made. And so they said, um, what puppet would you use? I said, um, they said, what would you get another judge? I said, I think it'd be too predictable if I did use a judge. So what about Sunita? If I've got Sunita made up, that would be funny, funnier material. And I've literally got like five days to write it and learn it and rehearse it. And, but my puppet maker had four days to make it <laughs> from scratch. So when I said Sunita, they hung up and they come back two minutes later. They said, the office love it. Can you get Sunita made up? And I said, I'll try my best. My puppet maker was on holiday in Wales. And I phoned him up. I said, I need you to get me out of the stuck right now because I, I need a puppet made up by Friday. He dropped everything. Uh, he came back on the Tuesday. He said, Steve, tell me what you need. Send me photos and I'll have it in the studios by Friday. And so he... He ordered all the material he needed. It was the Sunito. She's very famous by having leaves on her, like when she was in the jungle. She had these leaves covering her naughty bits. And <laughs> so we had the puppet go with that because it was a bigger impact. So I went to the studio. Oh, on the Wednesday, I had the phone call. The TV cameras came to the house. David Williams phoned me up and told me I was here with our uh, one-year-old baby on my lap. My wife was there. And David Williams says, you're the wild card. We chose you to be the wild card. And so I knew I had three days to write the script and the puppet was being made. They said, if you're not the wild card, we'll s- still pay for the puppet, you know, so so someone will be paid. And so £2,000 for Sunita, it cost, right. but they covered it. And by the Friday, uh, I was just about to rehearse. Peter Pullen, who's a great maker, he made Orville the Duck, Dickie Mint, Emu for Rod Hull, not the ventriloquist, and uh, <laughs> lots... Lots and lots of characters that you would have heard of. The Honey Monster, the great puppet maker. So he made me Sunita, and he drove all the way from Stroud and uh, the Siren Sestaway up the M4, and he met me at the studios in Wembley. And an hour later, I was using that puppet. So I, I rewrote a routine for Simon Cow, and then I brought out Sunita. And my wife taught me a little song, which was... Um, it's from Greece or something. I don't know. I don't know it now, but she taught me the words and I learned it in three days. And what you see on the final where Britain's Got Talent was what I come up with. Now, when I walked through the corridors in the rehearsal that day with Sunita, I had her in a, um, a bin bag 
and I was going because she had to get her hair done. The puppet did because uh, it was a bit messy, so they had to go and sort of dress her up. And but I was walking through the corridor with Sunita in a bin bag, and Sunita, the real person, walked past me, and I'm thinking. They've invited her. This is going to go well. Because I think the Simon Cowell thing only worked because Simon Cowell was in the audience. And if he wasn't there, it wouldn't have been as funny. So the cameras caught Simon Cowell laughing at himself. And the second time, when Sunita and Simon were pulled out of the trunks, um, the, the camera worked. There's five minutes of laughter in the studio. It was magical. The studio audience went crazy because... They were laughing at Simon laughing at his puppet and Sunita laughing at her puppet. Simon laughing at the Sunita puppet. And it was spiraled into just five minutes of pure laughter. And it gave me more airtime. It was great. And so I sang a little song with Simon and Sunita right at the end. It was electric. I came off the warm-up man. Bless him. Ian Royce gave me the the most massive of hugs. He's a great comic. And... uh, and I just thought I was going to win that night because it was electric in that studio. It was. Uh, I came back and uh, all the makeup people said that was perfect. They said, we all think you're going to win. We all want you to win backstage. And even Amanda said it on, on my piece. She said, we all want you to do well. And, and it was just, they were all for me then, you know. I turned it round. And on that live set, that's what you have to do. And it was incredible. And then I came forth. And I think what changed it really was there was this young girl in the orchestra. She threw eggs at Simon Cowell. It was a live show. And she was throwing eggs at him. And it was during Richard and Adam, who were who, uh, opera singers, they were singing their set. And the, the girl playing the violin, she had eggs in her violin case. And she took them out and just threw them at Simon Cowell because he turned her down once in an audition uh, live on TV. And she obviously kept that in her... Um, in her mind so she waited for the opportunity and so basically she won the show the lady with the egg throw and won the show because she was all over the papers on news of the world the next day and i had a little piece in there saying um the simon cow and the sunita puppet upset simon cow's now girlfriend who was sat behind sunita and if you watch it on youtube you can see her face when i pulled out his ex-girlfriend of oh, the really? case yeah <laughs> she wasn't happy so i got myself in a little bit of news of the world but the lady with the eggs obviously it's controversial there's a picture of egg simon with eggs all over his face as usual. And then that's really what stole the night. And there was a young comic called Jack Carroll, wonderful comic. And Richard and Adam came third and I came fourth. But I do believe if the egg lady wasn't there, Jack wouldn't have made the gag that he did. And I may have just stole it, but I'm not sure. You don't know. She turned the night differently because it it turned it into that moment. And my moment I was act four that night. I was on too early to make the bigger impact. Because uh, I, re- I remember watching like your final. Well, because to be fair, I mean to be sat here on stage with you now interviewing you is mind blowing. Considering back then, I was watching it as a BGT fan, rooting for you all the way. I even voted right. I mean, I didn't know obviously that they'd already oh, chosen you as the wild card, but oh, I voted wow. about. F- Seven or eight times, like at the, you know, like just picking up the phone. I will pay you at the back no, just before we go. Money well spent. I'll get you a cup of tea on the ferry. That'll, That'll be <laughs> more expensive. But yeah, but to, but I do I do know <laughs> I do know exactly what you mean. Like with with that situation, it was um, yes, yeah. But I mean, it was magical. Yeah, yeah. So sticking with like BGT, I mean, especially now as as it goes on, because um, I'm not afraid to tell you that I've been asked quite a few times to go on it. Um, but there seems to be a stigma attached to being a contestant on the reality show. Um, what's the attitude towards Britain's Got Talent 
within the industry from your perception? You, you only get, uh, you get typecast, so you get BGT, and then corporates won't touch you because they think, oh, they can only do three minutes. You, you get Stavros Flatley. I think they've got, like, 20-minute act or something. They come out and they do their thing. People love them. But uh, I've honed my act for my... There's only, you know, a few professionals will go on the on the show, and they can do an hour. You know, you can go out and do a great hour. I've worked with you, and you're a brilliant comic. And so you will kill it because you you won't go on there and make a mistake. You you will make sure every second counts, and that's what I had to do. I put myself at risk, and a lot of people know that. I had a few friends on there before I went on the show, so it was a good test to, to watch what they did, and and I kept that in mind. And so I knew with the Simon Cowell thing, it was the right time to do it, and it was it was perfect. But there is stigma to the show because you you will be put forward for a, a show or. Or you go and do a theatre tour and people won't put their bums on seats because they think a BGT act is not going to be able to fill a whole night, you see. And I'd been doing it for 25 years when I'd done that show. So I, I had the experience. So I went out and I'd done a, an hour and a half in my first theatre tour. And we'd done 42 theatres around the country, which Shanklin was one of them. And that was amazing. I'd done a second theatre tour about three or four years later. Uh, but it started to dwindle because I didn't get any more TV after that. That's because I'm a BGT act now, and there, there's nowhere you can go once you do the show. That's it. You, you know, the YouTube clips. Actually, I got a lot of work from the YouTube clips. Even now, I get corporate work from from YouTube and my website. But there is no TV. There's nowhere for you to go after these sort of things, unless you do win the show and get on the Royal Variety performance and then you're an overnight success. But these days, not as much as if you'd have done it in the 80s. Yeah, like with new you faces know. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you, uh, the Royal Variety show made stars. Uh, Jimmy Carr was probably one of the last stars that that show made, but it doesn't do what it used to do, the Royal Variety. So thinking of it, ana- um, thinking of it an- analytically... Yeah, I think, yes. I think I said that right. Good word. Yeah. <laughs> Analytically. You do it without moving your lips. <laughs> Analytically. That was all right, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Britain's Got Talent has been able to engage with a demographic of performers who arguably have been lost within the fur roofs of entertainment. How important is it in the show in, sorry, how, how important is it the show in revitalizing that side of entertainment, which is not always available to mainstream audiences? Yes, interesting question. D- difficult question to answer. It, it's um, it's uh, do, do you mean does, does it um, d- because it, I, there is a lot of alternative, like you get yeah. night, night at the Apollo, you know, yeah. and all these these uh, ch- panel shows that a lot of the comedians do. They're not going to have a ventriloquist on there. They're not going to go for the variety because I'm mainstream. You see, I'm BGT now and I'm mainstream. Yeah. And they wouldn't put the confidence in me to, to go on there with my character and try and be funny because I can't go out there and do bang, bang, bang jokes. I can do it, but they don't know that. They, they haven't come to see me work live. And, yeah. you know, I'd done a social club last night in Essex and it was, I, I went on at 10.30, come off at 11.40. And it was one of the best nights I've had this year. It was, there was like 150 people. It was packed and people just wanted to laugh, you know. It was amazing and... I ad-libbed for most of it. You know, I'd, I'd done a lot of my act, but the ad-libbing was just, just lovely. So I can, I can be... I mean, what is mainstream and alternative these days? It's merging, you know. You can do both. You know, we talked about that because you, you do pantomime, you do comedy clubs, yeah. it's not, uh, cruise ships. It's not easy to do all those genres, is I it? S- I still think, 
yeah, yeah, you're right in what you're saying, but I still think, um, I don't think, aiming on the question, there is a, it, it's the, there is still that divide, and I don't know why, you know, and it's, you know, obviously, because as we know, like ma- mainstream was was massive in the '80s. You know, you, you get the comedians, you know, and you know some great comedians like Roy Walker and Mike Reed and you know people like that would just and it just all be like you know joke 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 which then became mainstream and then the alternative kicked in or the alternative circuit then kicked in and then it's just become so alternate now that everyone seems to have an opinion and it's i don't know it just it's going to get to the point where i think funny is going to start getting lost because everyone's got an opinion but then that's where you know again going back to the question how important is it to to try and bring these shows and bring acts through to the mainstream to try and, you know, because the, the, the reason it's called mainstream is because you've got, obviously, a mainstream of an audience, not just the narrative. Yeah, well, I, I, can, and I can do a comedy club. I've had a, a, quite a diverse contrast of shows over the past few months. I, yeah. I, I've done uh, comedy club nights. I've done um, uh, Warner Holidays. And uh, the, I've done uh, family shows in holiday parks. And the diversity in all, all those audiences, I'm very lucky that I can entertain yeah. a lot of different type of audiences. And, and I am mainstream, but I I had a, a comedy club laughing at what I did, and I'm quite proud of that. I worked harder on that night because I knew that I'd have to try and, uh, you know, I wasn't a stag act, but I had to do my act, but it was a bit stronger that night. Yeah, but you're still a brilliant you act. Have to you have cater. You know. Yeah, you cater for your audience, don't you? And every night I'm is a challenge. And I haven't done a social club for two or three years, and last night, it w- I was nervous before I went on, and I went on quite late. They'd had some nice drinks before I went on, so I must <laughs> yeah. have been funnier. But it was it was a good hour and f- you know hour and ten minutes I went on for, and and they were all adults. It was just a brilliant night, you know. And and a few nights earlier, I was making little kids laugh, sat next to their grandparents. It's not Keith Harris always told me that. Uh, as ventriloquists and doing what we do, we can entertain the whole family. They're all sat together. And I do that in my theatre shows as well. It's it's nice to actually have, uh, you know, a wide range of audience. I just want to touch on um, what you said then, like you did a, a comedy club or yeah, social club where it was just all adults. Did that element of Keith Harris come out in you then? You know, because you said like Keith Harris, he'd, he'd do like families and then he'd done his duck off show. When you done like when you do like an adult or a comedy club, do you get that element of Keith Harris coming out in you? Yeah, definitely. Keith's always there. He, he was a very dear friend, and uh, we stayed in touch so much. You know, he taught me a lot. He always gave me advice, and um, people have always looked um, looked after me in this business. Uh, you know, I was just knocking on stage doors, and then after like ten years, they all just let me in. And and they, what advice do you need, Steve? And and I soaked it all up. Yeah. I soaked it up so I, I, I knew what you had to do in certain situations. Um, like when I worked with Ken Dodd, I knew after an hour, leave him wanting more, don't do another three hours. So I, I learned by Ken by not staying on, right? And then Roy Hudd, he would say, uh, you know, if you're going to do a theatre show and you've got nine minutes, don't do nine minutes, one second. Don't do seven minutes, 59 seconds. Do, well, I can't work that out, but nine minutes, do nine minutes, you know. He was all about timing and stuff, and uh, it was just perfection. When you do good old days, the comics got nine minutes, and then the dancers come on. Then you get another 10 or 20 minutes. Just stick to your time. Each of those people that I work with, they taught me different things, you know. And so Keith was always there. When I do the kids' shows, I'm thinking of Keith Harris and Orville, and this is what they were the loved. Then I'd done the comedy club, and I was like the, the adult Keith Harris. You know, I can do them both. 
and I can let rip, you know, but you have to hold on to that reputation that you've got, which is clean cut with me. You know, yeah, Roy Hudd would not like it if, if I'd done naughty words in the comedy club, so I wouldn't disrespect him by doing that. It's um, something you really need to be careful because I've worked on Disney cruises um, and Cunard cruises, and if they find out that you're doing stag nights, uh, you'd lose the Disney cruises, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, so in 2005, you were selected to resurrect the legendary Archie Andrews in the style of Peter Bruff. That's right. Well done. Yes. Yeah, we're all learning tonight, <laughs> yeah. aren't we? Peter Bruff. Yes. <laughs> Ned Peterborough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> two, two questions. How daunting was it to walk in the footsteps of such a pioneer of your art? And secondly, in order to stay to the, tr- or in order to stay true to the Peter Bruff art form, did you move your lips? Um, uh, uh, well, firstly, no, I didn't move my lips because I don't move my lips. But I mean, if you're going to do Peter Bruff and you're going to depict Peter Bruff, then you should move your lips. Because when he was on radio, Peter Bruff, uh, I talked about this, didn't I? He, he did move his lips when he went to television. And, and so th- he was slated in the papers for doing that. But he lost the diction. Uh, he lost the, the lip movement. He was a great ventriloquist when he was starting out. But when he went to radio, he had to move his lips so the listeners at home, the 17 million listeners, they could understand what Archie was saying. So it, it, I'll try and demonstrate. So if, if you go in a... Oh, hello, Archie. How are you? I'm okay, Mr. B. Nice to see you. I need to go to the bathroom. That might not be as clear yeah. as if I was going, Hello, Archie. How are you? I'm okay, Mr. B. Nice to see you. I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, it's a lot more clearer. So the clarity for radio, I think the producers may have said, you need to do something so they can... Because some of the words, if you're venting them, it won't pick up at the other end. And so for radio... Peter Bruff, in the studio, for the studio audience, he would move his lips so they'd see his lips moving. But because of that, he lost the technique. So when he went to stage and television, he lost the technique of a ventriloquist. And sadly, it never came back. Um, But he made millions of doing those 10 years on radio, and and bless him. It it was an incredible thing. So in 2012, Archie Andrews, because we lost Peter Bruff in in 1999, and all of his Archie Andrews dolls and memorabilia and all of his scrapbooks that he had from a child up until when he retired, they all went up for auction. And Archie Andrews fetched £40,000 because of the history that the show made. And it was, you know, the Hancock. There's pictures of the Beatles with Archie and Benny Hill. All these greats worked with him. So... It's it's the actual history that the dummy created that that I think fetched the money, you know. So there's people all over the world uh, bidding for him. So these people uh, lived near me in Sussex, and I didn't knock on their door at eight a.m. But that I heard on the radio that on Newsnight it was on the radio, and then it was on Newsnight that Archie had been bought, and they were looking for a new voice for Archie Andrews. And somebody told me this, and I got in touch. I looked in the local. Do you remember the, the local phone book? Yeah. It's like Yellow Pages. Yeah, yeah. None of that happens these days. Um, the local phone book had, uh, it was na- his name was Colin Burnett Dick and Pauline Burnett Dick. That was the name. <laughs> and it was actually in, <laughs> you're just laughing at the name Burnett. And so his, his, um, his name w- and phone number was in the phone book. I phoned up. I said, hello, is that Colin? He said, yes, yes. 
I heard that you're looking for a voice of Archie Andrews. He said, oh, yes, I, and I told him who I was. I said, I, I wrote to Peter Bruff, Peter Bro when I was really young, and I would love to get involved. What do you need to do? I said, well, I'm, I'm meeting ventriloquists to see if somebody can uh, come on board and do a play. We want to do a play about Archie Andrews and the Educating Archie shows. I went to the house. I met Archie. I tried to do the voice. So the real Archie Andrews sat on my knee. Hello, Archie. Oh, hello, Mr. Steve. Nice to see you, Mr. H. I tried to work on the voice. And a week later, I got the call, and they said, we want you to do it. So a week later, I was on Newsnight with Archie Andrews doing the voice and practicing and learning the voice. Uh, this is a huge passion of mine, you know, not just ventriloquism, but... I've got Archie on my knee, a 40,000 pound puppet, you know. I mean, Doddy's, Diddy Doddy's only five, so that you can imagine the, the, the passion I had. So, so I did Newsnight, and then I was on Radio 4, and then I said to Colin in 2011, I said, I'm doing two shows in Cromer in Norfolk, and one of them's a New York kind of show, and another one is a radio-themed show. I said, could I use Archie all summer? And so he was insured. So he let me use the real Archie Andrews. So I went on Radio 4 to say Archie's coming to uh, Chroma Pier. He's coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, uh, out of the suitcase. He's back on stage, and there was, there was national press, local press, and people heard me talking on the radio. John Major came to see me do Archie uh, with Norma because his father was in the musical um, business, John Major's father. And... Uh, so he was fascinated by Archie Andrews. His dad worked with Peter Bruff. And so he came to Cromer to see the show. And he was quite disappointed because we'd done two shows. He came to see the New York show. And I said, I'm so sorry, Mr. Major. That show's next week. You've come to see the wrong show. He said, we'll come back. And a week later, he came back. And he brought loads of lords and that with him as well. And uh, I got like extra bookings from that. It was lovely. Um, but... Uh, so uh, he wanted to meet Archie Andrews. It was just the fascination for that dummy. And also Roger Lloyd Pack from uh, Only Fours and Horses, the wonderful trigger, he came back just to meet Archie. Uh, but I got to meet these people through the dummy, you know. It's, and it made me think, how big was this show back then? It was huge. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing, being involved in that. And then a year later, I co-wrote the play, Re-Educating Archie, I took it on the stage. We've done three shows down in Eastbourne, where I live. And um, we, we had loads of people. Peter Bruff's daughter come to the show, Romy, who's an artist. She come to watch. And Dave Evans played a character. He played Harry Seacombe. And he played Max Bygraves. And Dave Evans is a great comedian. We lost him about three years ago. But he's the father of Lee Evans. And Dave is such a great entertainer. And he played two characters for me. Well, a wonderful friend of mine called Helen Moore Jackson played Hattie Jakes, who was on the Archie show. So all, all, we put a stage show on, and it was brilliant. We'd done a, a variety show, uh, and there was a variety artist. Somebody played Max Miller. And there was also a section where we would actually all be on stage with scripts, BBC microphones, and we would depict one episode of Educating Archie. And we brought it back for them people, so the audiences that came to see, we sold out three shows that weekend. And it was just really magical, but that's where my time with Archie ended, with, with that show. But it was, that was the goal, was to put it on stage. And it was really nice. You know, it was a nice, nice time. That was in 2012, and 2013 was BGT. So I moved on. 
<laughs> so going back, obviously, with that, I mean, it feels from, you know, obviously a, a friend's point of view, but also for anyone that, like, follows follows your career, it always feels like that you're never without a tour on the go, right? So I'm going to ask you, how do you maintain the motivation, drive, and more importantly, the originality? It's, uh, it's important to be original because if you're not original and you don't put a new show on, they won't come back to see the third tour. So my third tour, which was going out last year and then this year, it's now next year. So uh, this is a brand new show that I wrote and I tried it just before the first lockdown and I took it back on the road a few weeks ago. We um, got about 150 da- down in Bognor Regis and then I went in Skegness a couple of weeks ago. Skegness. And so it was all... It was all. Um, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, time taking the show back on stage. So it was. Uh, so what we did uh, was actually move all the dates to next year. So what we're doing, what we're doing is um, d- taking the show. We're taking the show back on the road next year. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.